Well, there is, and I don't know if you've ever heard this, but there is a way that theologians often speak about our understanding of Christianity and the gospel. And and sometimes we say there's a grammar to the gospel. There's a grammar to the gospel. If you were looking at the earlier chapters of Galatians, and especially in that section of Galatians 2 where the Apostle Paul says, um, I've been crucified with Christ. It is yet not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And, and he says elsewhere, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, and he dwells with me and in me. We often uh, refer to the prepositions of the gospel. The entirety of the gospel is summed up in those great prepositions. Christ for me. He gave himself for me. Christ with me. Christ in me. Well, it may also rightly be said that the secret to Christian living is also found in the verbs that the apostles give us in Scripture. And here in Galatians 6, there are verbs that we want to look at and we want to consider. Some of them are explicitly in the text. Some of them are drawn out by way of deduction. But there are four here that we want to consider tonight as we look at Galatians 6, 1 through 10. We want to consider the words bearing, giving, living, and serving. Bearing, giving, living, and serving. There is a sense where when Paul wants to bring everything to bear now and in a very focused way give direction to the members of this church, he, he turns his attention to their interactions with one another. As we heard this morning, this is the apostle focusing on the horizontal dimensions of the Christian life in the Christian community. And he's going to do so by telling them that they are to be a people who bear, who give, who live and who serve by sowing to the Spirit and by living in step with the Spirit. Now, before we look at those, notice that the immediate context of this passage, the Apostle Paul has set out two great catalogs. He set out the works of the flesh and he set out the fruit of the Spirit. Those things are diametrically opposed and everyone who is trusting in his or her own works Trusting in the law here in this context, trusting in what they were doing, the ceremonial law that the Judaizers were trying to put on these new converts as a heavy burden. And, and whoever was trusting in his or her own works in whatever shape or form that comes in, the apostle tells them inevitably they are going to be living according to the works of the flesh. That if you put yourself in the never enough quagmire of works, you will constantly be falling and failing and never be bearing any of the good fruit God wants you to because that doesn't come from trusting in yourself or your effort or anything else. In fact, the apostle is so insistent on this that in chapter three, he'll actually use the strongest possible language when he's talking to this body of believers and he'll say, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell over you? You started by faith. Are you now made perfect by the flesh? They had convinced themselves that the Christian life was begun by looking to the crucified Son of God, but that the rest of the Christian life was up to them and was up to their effort and their commitment to uh, seeking to obey God's law uh, for an ultimate right standing before God. And in so doing, there was no power over sin. There was no power for godliness. There were 
There was that long catalog. Paul says the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the other things I warned you about. And then by way of contrast, those who are looking to Christ by faith alone and are living in light of the spirit that he pours out on us are those who bear the sweet fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness and goodness and self-control. Now, to understand what Paul is going to do here in chapter 6, you have to understand that there were people who thought they had attained to a greater measure of spirituality by their religious adherence to the ceremonial law in Israel. So by turning from Christ to a religious uh, uh, external um, days and months and seasons and years and every sort of external ceremonial thing God had given Israel in the Old Covenant, by turning from Christ to those things, they, they had been convinced and had deceived themselves into thinking they were the really spiritual ones in the church. And let me say this this evening. That's the way it always works. I have never met someone who is completely sold out to religious rituals who does not think that he or she is more spiritual than other people. You see, it is ingrained deeply in us to want to compare ourselves with others and to think, well, I'm not like them. The Apostle is actually going to say in this section, if anyone thinks that he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Um, the law of God actually levels the playing field. There's none righteous. There's none who does good. We're all like an unclean thing. All our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. There is, there is no one who is not born dead in sins and trespasses. And so to convince yourself and to think that you're more spiritual than others is, is, a great, is a great spiritual error in our souls. And so notice when Paul turns his attention now to the interactions of the members of this church, and there clearly had been rivalries and dissensions and envies and strife among them, and certainly the Judaizers had helped bring that in, and they had allowed that to fester. Um, the apostle wants to draw the implications now, and he says, look, if you really are spiritual people, if you really are spiritually minded, if you really are living life in the spirit as you ought to be, this is this is what your life ought to be characterized by. And number one, he says, bearing, bearing the burdens of others. Notice this in verse one, Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, uh, there could be books written just on this passage and the passage in 2 Corinthians when the man who had been excommunicated from the church had been brought back to the church and the people in the church were shunning him. And the apostle has to say there in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, receive such a one lest he have sorrow upon sorrow because 
we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. And it seems there that uh, what Paul is saying is there's a propensity for church members to see someone who has fallen into sin, whatever that sin may be, as that's them and that's not me. And therefore, we need to distance ourselves from this person, even when that person is repentant and comes back. And here in Galatians 6, the word is we should be considering the burden that others may be under, even a transgression that they may be caught in. Um, Phil Riken says when Christians are caught in sin, they do not need isolation or amputation. They need restoration. Um, our tendency is to either not help a brother or sister and pull back and look on at them or talk about them. And I am chief guilty of that in my life or to go at it in a heavy handed, legal, harsh, punitive way that only hastens their ruin. John Calvin has much to say on this in his commentary, but let me read this to you and and try to listen to this. He says, hardly less injury is frequently done by unseasonable and excessive severity, which under the plausible name of zeal, the plausible name of zeal, springs in many instances from pride and from dislike and contempt of the brethren. Calvin says, most men seize on the faults of brethren as an occasion of insulting them and of using reproachful and cruel language. We, Calvin says, must display a gentle and meek spirit if we intend to heal our brother. He'll go on to say that many have acted in Pharisaic zeal in the name of helping someone who's snared in sin only to hasten them on to destruction. Um, There's a real word here. True Christians bear the burdens of their brethren if they are living life in the spirit because they realize how prone they are to sin. We realize how weak we are. We realize how much we fail. Um, You know, I often think about Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, not looking at your brother's. Uh, what, what should appear like a speck when I look at a distance at anyone, whatever's in your eye ought to look like a speck. And the sin in my remaining, the indwelling sin, ought to be like a plank in my eye. I ought to see that rather than fixate on what ought to appear from a distance as a speck. And I ought to, Jesus says, remove that and then help my brother See clearly, well, if you've removed it, you've acknowledged that you have a huge mass of sin in your own life that needed to be dealt with in the gospel. And so here the Apostle Paul is doing the same thing. He's teaching these people to, to bear, to bear with one another, to bear the burdens of one another, to get down and to muscle the load that they are bearing. Um, there's an assumption here that true believers are burdened by their own sin, isn't there? When Paul says here um, in verse 2, bear one another's burdens, he is speaking, I believe, about the transgression in which a brother or sister may be snared. And, And true believers feel the burden of sin, don't we? We feel the weight of it. We hate it. We don't like that we do things we shouldn't do. We cry out with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am. 
I do things I don't want to do. I don't do things that I want to do. I find a war within me, an irreconcilable war, the Westminster Confession of Faith says. Irreconcilable all the days of our life. John Owen, in his great work um, on indwelling sin, a companion to mortification of sin, says, if you don't find a battle within you, then you're probably not a Christian. Because true believers are always finding a burdensome fight and tension with our flesh. Martin Luther, when he reflects on this passage in general, he says, What is so proper to man as to fall, to be deceived, and to err? As the saints in this life do not only live in the flesh, but now and then also, through the enticement of the devil, fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so there's a recognition, isn't there, that I am one. I am the one that needs redemption. And because I need the help of others, I ought to be the one ready to help and assist others and come alongside and bear the burden that they're bearing to help put them back into place. The idea of the word restore is to put back in the place where they ought to be. Um. I heard this story recently about someone who had fallen into some egregious sin and um, and when he and his family went back to the church they were in where church discipline had been enacted, the, the church members were just cold to them. Uh, that ought not be so. Ever. There ought to be a a deep affection and love, humility and meekness, um, thinking properly about ourselves. Notice that Paul says there in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now let me just say this. The whole context of Galatians is Judaizers are saying you need to keep the law. And Paul's saying if you, if you want a law to fulfill, here's the law. Deal with one another with a gentle spirit, a gentle spirit. Um, Now, gentleness is not just um, gentleness is not necessarily a soft voice and a sort of neutral emotional response to people. Sometimes we mistake in that and we meet people whose tempers are unlike my temper perhaps, and they, they are soft-spoken and they are sort of just emotionally automatons, and we think, oh, that's a gentle person. Not necessarily. That may just be their natural disposition. Gentleness involves a merciful heart, a tenderness, a kindness, a compassion, um, a, a desire to come alongside. Gentleness has a a tender affection built into it, whatever your disposition may be naturally. And Paul is saying the truly spiritual, if if you really want to fancy yourself a spiritual person, a truly spiritual person is a gentle person who is always seeking to come alongside and restore. Now, where where would Christians find an example of this? In this messy, fallen world. Well, we'd find one in the Savior, wouldn't we? When Jesus spoke about himself, he said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. What a greater thing. I want to go to Jesus every time I hear that. Does that not draw you immediately to the Savior? And and what does the Savior do? He bears the burden when he carries the cross and all of our sin put on him. He doesn't leave us in isolation or amputation. He, He enacts and animates and brings about restoration through his death on the cross. Jesus bears the burdens of his people, every single one of us. The Apostle Paul says in Romans, he says, the reproaches with which we reproached God fell on him at the cross. That's amazing. Is that not amazing? Every sinful word, every outburst of wrath, every lustful look, every proud moment, every love of money, every single thing that is dishonoring to God, put on the Savior on Calvary and washed away in his blood. That's the gospel. And Paul says we are to be emulators as those who are bearing one another's burdens. And then secondly, notice, he says that we are to be a giving people. And and notice here in verse 6, it doesn't seem to fit together, but I think it is built on the idea of bearing. It is a second action of Christians, a second verb. Notice, let the one who has taught the word share in all good things with the one who teaches. Now, this is one of those verses that very clearly teaches us we should pay our pastors well. There are people who think because the Apostle Paul didn't take a paycheck that we shouldn't. The Apostle Paul was the one who said, don't muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. It is right and good for a people to pay a minister who feeds them, who labors for their spiritual good to pay him well. And here is another one of those verses where the Apostle Paul, who, yes, while he set an example in that primitive day of Christianity and laying a foundation and saying, I'm not a swindler, I'm not here for your money. That was an extraordinary example. But that apostle says, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him. Who teaches? Why? Because otherwise there is going to be a burden of need placed on the shoulders of ministers and their families. Because ministers are not selling a product. They're not entrepreneurs. They're not really slick businessmen and communicators and everything else that the world values. They are ministers of the everlasting word of God. And they are to be free from the burdens that... Uh, would come from not being cared for by the people of God. Now, I don't think in our day we have quite the problem that the rest of church history has had with paying pastors well. Uh, Martin Luther has a really humorous, as Martin Luther often did, really humorous uh, account where he he was chewing out the people, which I'm not here to do, um, for not paying their ministers well in his day. And he said, look, you, you take care of your donkeys and your cows better than you do your pastors. You feed them, you get up, you take care of them, you make sure they're provided for, but you don't take care of your pastors. This has been a problem throughout church history. And here, what Paul is saying is that in the Christian life, we are to be a giving people, and everything about our fellowship is to be marked by a charitableness and a willfulness to give generously for the sake of the gospel and for the advancement of the kingdom. Now, Paul is going to go into that language of sowing and reaping. Notice 
verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now, he's drawing off that agricultural illustration that they knew so well in his day that whatever seed went into the ground and whatever work went into the plowing and the sowing and the, and, and, and the seeding of the field was going to produce a harvest commensurate with what was sown, that there was a law of sowing and reaping that was known. It is built into the very fabric of the universe God has created, and there is a law built into the church, and that law is whatever we sow, we're going to reap, and specifically here, I think the apostle has in view what we do with our finances in light of giving for the ministry of the gospel and the needs of the saints and the advancement of the kingdom. Um, I want to read one other thing to you here. Eric Alexander, who is uh, one of the great Scottish pastor theologians of our day, of the 20th century certainly, uh, was talking about the issue of Christians and giving, and, and he said, in essence, you know, this is one of those areas of our life that we can hide, whether we give or not. Um, I didn't know who gave in the church that I pastored for 10 years. Um, that's a good thing. But, but it can also become a way for people to hide what they're actually sowing and reaping and, and how they're actually living in light of their relationships with one another. And Alexander says this, most of our lives are inscrutable to everyone else. Even if we contrive to sow one kind of crop secretly all our days and pretend it's another, yet in the harvest, the facts will become painfully obvious. People can pretend that it doesn't really matter how they live, what priorities they have. They can deep down be careless about the things of God, can imagine that their secretly sowing will not affect the harvest that's going to be produced in their life, and it's simply not true. Do not be deceived, said the apostle. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Now listen to this. Alexander says seeds need to be invested in the soil. The way to lose the seed is to keep it. The way to lose the seed is to keep it, not to plant it. And when Paul speaks about sowing and reaping and planting in light of Christian giving, he's talking about investing what God has entrusted to us for the one thing for which it was meant. And that's what the hymn writer meant when he said, we lose what on ourselves we spend. Now, I feel that painfully. Um, I was thinking this week about the widow who put in the two mites, all that she had, and, and Jesus pointing her out and making her an example, and, and the wealthy putting in out of their abundance. And, you know, think about this. It's incalculable, calculable to say the word incalculable. <laughs> it's very difficult to say this. Um, it is unmeasurable how many billions of dollars have been given in the kingdom of God because that widow put in those two little mites over 2,000 years. When you think about examples of giving in the kingdom of God, you don't think about the billionaires. I used to be naive and thinking, oh, if we just had some wealthy financier, the church would... No, that's not how it works. The widow that puts in everything she has fuels billions of giving. 
throughout the history of the Christian church. When we put those seeds in, we reap what we sow. Paul will say elsewhere that when we give beyond even what we're able, God is able to give us more. And I've experienced that in my life at times so that we can give more. He's able to do that. It's It's a measure of faith. And so there is bearing, there is giving, there is living that Paul now speaks about. Now notice he moves almost seamlessly from giving to living when he says in verse eight, the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Now, this is all encompassing. This is every avenue of our life. This is not just how we look at one another when we're caught in some particular transgression. This is not just what we do with our finances in regard to gospel ministry and the work of the kingdom of God. This is everything. This is what we look at, we think about, we talk about. This is how we respond to things. This is the totality of our lives. And Paul is saying, as Christians, if we feed the flesh and sow to the flesh, we are going inevitably to reap corruption. But if we sow to the spirit, we are going to reap eternal life. Now, that's not saying if you do good enough, you'll be saved. Paul's already made clear we're saved by what Christ has done. But what it's saying is that as Christians, our lives are to be marked by sowing and reaping spiritual things for the good of our own souls here. Isn't that interesting how Paul now drives it to the individual and he says, now think about how you're living yourself in light of whatever activities you're involved in. Um, this is a good verse to memorize when we're at work or out in public or wherever. Whoever sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. Whoever sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap eternal life. It, it's a good verse to memorize and meditate on in the home. What we say to our spouses, to our children, how children talk to their parents, how children listen to their parents or don't listen to their parents. Um, It's all-encompassing. And so Paul has said that Christians are to sow and to reap in their Christian living in whatever sphere that is. Now, I want to sort of hasten on here to the end of this passage tonight. And notice verse 9 and 10. Here, the apostle is going to tell us that we are also to be a people whose lives are marked by serving, bearing, giving, living, and now serving. Um, But before he tells us the moral proximity of how we're to be serving and how we're to be distributing our time in service, and he's going to tell us in a very wonderful verse, notice verse 9, he says, and let us not grow weary of doing good. Now, I don't know if this has ever struck you, Why do you think the Apostle Paul has to say, don't grow weary of doing good? Because we grow weary of doing good. I don't know if you've ever found yourself, you know, you're serving in the church maybe, or you're serving in the community, or you're doing things in the home and you feel like you're all alone and you come to breaking points where you say, I'm not going to do this anymore. That's what Paul's speaking about. Don't grow weary in doing good. He's not saying, he's not saying, 
needlessly work yourself to death and don't feed your own soul and do more and more and more and more and live a more frenetic life. He's saying don't grow tired in doing good whenever you have those opportunities to do that, which is always. Don't give up. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. So much of the Christian life is just not quitting. And I don't mean that in a moralistic sense. And think about how much Jesus says things like, he who endures to the end will be saved. He's not saying you're going to be saved on the basis of your endurance. He's saying you must endure to be saved. Don't quit. Think about how much the Apostle Paul himself had to coach himself when everybody abandoned him. Titus even forsook him in Troas. Everybody left him. He basically came to a point where Paul said, I'm all alone. And he said, but the Lord stood with me. And he said repeatedly in First and Second Corinthians, therefore we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed. We do not lose heart. We press on in ministry. We press on in doing good. We press on in giving our lives for the advancement of the kingdom of God. No matter how hard or difficult or tiring or frustrating it may get. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, used to say uh, that ministers, and this is true of all people, need to work themselves to death and pray themselves alive again. Do not grow weary, Paul says, in doing good. And then there's a promise. For we will reap if we do not give up. That's a really beautiful word, isn't it? That has the authority of the infinite God behind it. We will reap if we do not give up. I've been shocked at how many Christians, professing Christians have abandoned the faith over the last five years. Famous Christians, well-known, professing leaders, pastors, people who preached expository sermons in Calvinistic churches. I'm not a Christian anymore. Just walk away from the faith. Paul says, do not lose heart. We will reap if we persevere. Um, And then there's the lesson about service. Notice verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. Now, sometimes theologians will debate this verse and they'll say, well, you know, shouldn't we really see in this that Paul's saying he's talking about doing good in the community? Well, no, he says, especially to the household of faith. He is talking about doing good in the community, but he's not saying especially in the community. He's saying especially to the household of faith. But he is saying in the community. He's not saying just to the household of faith. He's not saying let's isolate ourselves and just do good to each other. But as we have opportunity around us, let's seek to do good to all, no matter who they are. Augustine, St. Augustine has a theory of moral proximity, and basically what he says is, in essence, look, we only have so many resources, we only have so much time, we can't be involved in everything. I like to envision Augustine having like a vision of the internet and how everything comes into our world now on our couch, and it's like, oh no, I've got to help these people in Bangladesh. I don't even know where Bangladesh is on a map. 
I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm sorry if you love Bangladesh. I'm sorry. But but we do. We have this pouring in, streaming in. Now we've got to go get involved in this and do this. And, and the whole, the news of what's happening all over the world, streaming through Twitter into our brains and consciences. And, and I like to envision Augustine saying, listen, calm down. It starts with your family. It starts with your church. It starts with your neighbors. And it works out in those spheres of moral proximity to where God has placed you right where he has you. And here's the marvelous thing. The Lord has redeemed us to do good in this world until he comes again. And you know who's not going to do good? I mean, true, spiritual, real, biblical, gospel-centered good. No one else. Only Christians who are filled with the Spirit, redeemed by Christ, can do anything that is truly and really good and pleasing to God and beneficial to their neighbors. You know, Luther has that quote, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. It's true. Um, If we don't tell our neighbors about Christ, who's going to? So we should open our homes to unbelievers. We should be hospitable for the sake of the gospel. We should be seeking to do good. We should be inviting our neighbors to hear the gospel preached at a church like this. We should be seeking to use our possessions to be a benefit to others and a blessing, especially to the household of faith, but to anyone around us to whom we have opportunity to do good. Now, as I said earlier, Christ is the example of burden bearing. Christ is the example of everything. Think about this. Who, like Jesus, gave everything? He left the glories of heaven. And he gave his very lifeblood for our redemption. He spared nothing. God gave his own son. He gave us everything. And he says he's going to give us everything with him. He's the redemptive model of giving. Who lived like Jesus? Who sowed to the spirit as perfectly as Jesus? No one. Perfectly sowed to the spirit every second of every day of his life. And who did good to all? And Luke, by the way. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Luke, at the beginning of Luke, talks about Jesus going around and doing good. His life could be summarized by constantly doing good to those around him who had need as he had opportunity. Um, My hope in this is that the Lord would reignite in us a desire to put into practice the verbs of Christian living as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, knowing that we're redeemed by him, knowing that he's washed away our sins, knowing that he's covered all of our failures, knowing that we will fail, and yet he is there to bear us up, but that we would be a people who are committed to these things in our Christian fellowship and in our Christian lives. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you've given another clear word about how we ought to live as Christians. And Lord, we feel so readily our failures, our shortcomings, our weaknesses, our 
uh, even our tendency to grow weary in bearing and giving and living and serving. Lord Jesus, would you please um, animate us by the gospel? Would you please recalibrate our minds and hearts tonight? Would you please give us a renewed desire to commit ourselves to live as these sorts of people in this world at this time? We pray that for the members of Christ Church Presbyterian. We pray for your rich blessing on them as they live their Christian lives together for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.